Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. When I was a young nerd. If I could only find a man like Aragorn. I'm Trisha Bobita. I'm Greta Johnson, and from WBEZ Chicago, this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week on the show, the origin story of one of the greatest nerds in all of public radio. And one of my favorites in all of pop culture. Peter Sagal. Peter Sagal, host of NPR's quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, is here to talk to us about when he once turned his back on his nerdy passions, why he now loves Game of Thrones, and why you should get a dog. We are now officially part of the WBEZ podcast family. This is the first episode launching season two, but it's not really a BEZ podcast until you make an appearance. So I thank understand. you for coming. And until you get the tattoos. <laughs> right. This is our bot mitzvah. Oh, yeah, we're working on here. that. We're now official mitzvah. in the Today family. Today yep. you are a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now it's official. Yep. So here at Nerdette, we like to think of nerd as a verb. So it's just anything that people are sort of obsessed with, passionate about. You could be a baseball nerd. You could be a Star Trek nerd. You could be a nerd about just about anything. I have a problem with that. You do? Right off the top. All right. Because, and I've been somewhat vocal about this, when I was a young nerd, it was not a term of approbation. No one ever walked around and said, hey, I'm a nerd or whatever. (laughs) And these days, it's become a word meaning enthusiast, maybe even fanatic, maybe expert. I've met people who call themselves sex nerds. <laughs> There's a woman, actually, who has the Sex Nerd podcast. Yes, Sandra. Sandra, yeah. My attitude toward this is, A, when I was a young nerd, being a nerd meant you didn't have sex. <laughs> so sex nerd is an oxymoron. And secondly, I'm actually serious about this. Imagine you're a gay man, say, in your 60s. And you're looking around and you're seeing these wonderfully happy out gay kids in their 20s or even 30s and they're having wonderful lives and they're out and they're just enjoying the freedom to be out and gay. But you're a 60-year-old gay man and you look at them and you're like, I'm very happy for them. But when I was their age, I was closeted. I was persecuted. It was tough. It was difficult. It was a struggle. It was hard to find people like me. That's how I feel looking at you young people calling themselves nerds. I'm very happy for you that you can walk around <laughs> with your little flask that says polyjuice potion and show it to people with pride. I believe you're familiar with this particular brew. If I had done the equivalent in like 1975, <laughs> I would have gotten beaten up behind the high school. It got better. It did get better. It did get better. And I'm happy that it's gotten better for you guys. Just my message to you all is that there was suffering involved in your liberation, okay? Yeah. I understand. And I appreciate my elders who paved the way. I do. I do. And I think that the beauty of the Internet age for young people is that if you were the only kid in your high school who liked D&D and Lord of the Rings, you can now go online and find all the rest of them. Yeah. I had to join something called the Mythopaic Society. 
Oh boy. Just to try to find people to talk about Lord of the Rings with. And the Mythopaic Society was sort of an <laughs> academic society devoted to the study of the faux mythology of Tolkien Lewis and a third author whose name escapes me right now. And it was the most boring, dry thing. I just wanted to talk to other kids about how cool it would have been if Aragorn had a machine gun. You know, I mean, that's where I was. <laughs> I didn't want to read bizarre scholarly novels about the use of Norse myth in the Silmarillion. God damn it. <laughs> but those were the only way you that's could connect the only, with that's your only, people. That's you know, the only, only way I had. It was terrible. My point is, fine. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad that everybody's happy. I mean, now it's cool because now, like, you know, Lord of the Rings is major culture. So people come to me and they say, hey, could you explain this? And say, well, yes, I can because I devoted, <laughs> I devoted my youth to studying it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, guys... You're not nerds. You're fans. You're enthusiasts. Well, but the nerd credential argument is one that we reject because we want to make it so that people who are the obsessed are ambassadors for the thing that they love so that it can become more inclusive because the subcultures still exist. I was very much part of the mainstream nerdery in the 70s and early 80s that has since become sort of popular culture. So, for example, space, a final frontier. When I was growing up, I loved the original Star Trek. I was part of that post-original run fan base that led to, you know, the first Star Trek movies and then, of course, Star Trek The Next Generation. So my weird obsession when I was 11 in 1976 of re-watching Star Trek reruns over and over again so I could name any episode in 30 seconds. If there was a Name That Star Trek episode game show, I would have won it. I would have been <laughs> the Ken Jennings of Name That Star Trek episode. I can name that episode in three seconds and, uh, you know, can't do it anymore, by the way. But now, of course, Star Trek is this enormous culture and this is a huge business and they're rebooting the movies, as we all know. Similarly, Lord of the Rings. That was my huge thing. You know, I was reading Lord of the Rings in the tattered Ballantine paperback covers that we all remember if you're that age. And, you know, I reread them and reread them. I was giving them to my friends. I sat in the theater and saw the terrible Ralph Bakshi animated <laughs> version of Lord of the Rings. I even sat and watched. Nobody remembers this but me. What happened was is the <laughs> Ralph Bakshi version was supposed to be in two parts. And because the first part was so terrible, they never made the second part. So the rights got kicked around and they ended up making a TV special called The Return of the King, which was, among other things, a musical. Oh, boy. They put nobody like I'm I'm the only person who saw this because no one ever talks about it. But I swear I didn't make it up. They had this television version of The Return of the King with singing orcs. Oh, no. Oh. It was awful. So, and then, of course, thanks to Peter Jackson, uh, now Lord of the Rings is mainstream culture. Here are the things that I liked that maybe give me a little more uh, recondite credential. I loved elaborate war games, like the Avalon Hill war games, or even the more incredibly elaborate war games, you know, the incredibly complicated rules, the hexes and the maps and stuff like that. Sure. I had a bunch of those. I mean, I basically turned my back on nerdy things more or less by the time I got to college. My, my main thing was like literary science fiction. Meaning I was reading Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Robert Silverberg, James Blish, uh, Roger Zelazny, one of my favorites. I had a library of about 2,000 lurid paperbacks. And when you start dropping some of these names, people are like, who? But I went to like the 1980 World Science Fiction Con. I met Frederick Pohl and Isaac Asimov. That was like a huge day for me. So if there was like one thing that I was really into, it was what they used to call hard science fiction. 
you wrote a beautiful obituary on your blog of uh, Ray Bradbury yeah. that I really connected with. And can you tell me what you loved about his science fiction in that sort of well, com- in comparison to some of those other folks you mentioned? What makes Ray the, Bradbury the, the unique? The thing for I you? loved about Ray Bradbury is Bradbury, of course, was one of the seminal figures of that era in science fiction. Your basic text where you start was like The Illustrated Man and the Mars stories. What was the name of his big Mars book? I the forget. Martian Chronicles. The Martian Chronicles. Thank you. Of course. Jeez, idiot. You know, everybody knew those books. That was you start. Nerd with. fail, Peter. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say The Million Year Picnic, which is, of course, the last story. The first story is Rocket Summer. The last story is Million Year Picnic. I could remember the names of the stories. couldn't remember the name of the book. Sorry, Greta. Anyway. And it's okay. You've redeemed yourself. What Carry was, on. What was wonderful about him is Bradbury's science fiction ideas, we don't remember him for that as much as the people in the story. The firefighter. The firefighter. The family in The Million Year Picnic. That image of we're going to go meet the Martians. And they look into the canal. Mars has canals. <laughs> and and they see their own reflections. And the father of the family says, these are the Martians. And Bradbury had this wonderful sort of Midwestern American take. And so it was this wonderful view, not so much of like what, you know, bizarre scientific advances the future may have, but it was a way of writing stories about normal people in unusual situations. It was very, very compelling. So what about Harry Potter? I want to talk about Harry Let's Potter. Let's talk about you, Harry Potter. Especially brother. because, so Trisha and I are two years apart, which means that we had this weird age differential where Trisha's pretty much the same age that Harry was oh. as she went through reading the books. Yep. And I was just enough older that I started reading them because I babysat for these girls who wanted me to read them the first book. And right. then like they would sit down and take their naps and I would keep reading because I was like, oh, this mm. is actually not that bad at all. <laughs> and you had sort of a similar experience. I did. Right? I, and I want to quote uh, Nicholas Kristof, of all people, who wrote a wonderful column about great books to read aloud. And he had one sentence about Harry Potter. He said, getting to read the Harry Potter books aloud is probably the best reason to have children. <laughs> And then he moved on to some other more recondite book he had to talk about more. And it's true. And when Harry Potter came out in 99, I think was the first book published, my kids were too young. But I had everybody was talking about Harry Potter. So I read it and I thought it was very derivative. I mean, sure, she dressed it up a little bit, you know, with her various little chocolate frogs and, you know, her, her little, which was <laughs> clever. But the whole idea of the changeling son that, you know, you are the secret prince. Right. It just goes back so far. The idea that these are not your true parents your true parents are unlike and are special and you have this gift and yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, Jesus, right? Yes. For example. (laughs) That guy. That guy. (laughs) I think I read the first two books. I was like, eh. And then years went by. My oldest daughter was about five or six. She was kind of precocious. So I said, let's read the first book. And I read the first book and I fell in love with it for two reasons that I hadn't understood when I read it to myself as sort of just for myself. First of all, J.K. Rowling writes so much about sound It's an aural book, A-U-R-A-L. It's all Mm -hmm. about the sound. She's constantly describing what things sound like. She writes really distinctive voices. It's very hard to read her dialogue without falling into a particular rhythm for every character. Sometimes it's with accent, like with agrid. Sometimes it's just the rhythm Mm -hmm. of their speech. So it's so easy to find the voices because they're such great characters. And the second thing I did not appreciate is that I thought that Harry was a very bland protagonist. It's very common, I've done this myself as a writer, and to read, particularly people's first novels, that the least interesting character is the central character because he or she is the viewpoint, the glasses through which you see everything. They tend to be very passive. A very good example is Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. 
Because right. he's constantly going, whoa, what's that? Huh? <laughs> they're the conduit for the world building that the author's Right, doing. exactly. Yeah. So they're yeah. looking around, and so they tend to be rather dull. Reading it to my kids, seeing them react to Harry, they loved Harry. He is recapitulating the childhood experience. He's confused. He doesn't understand stuff. He's trying to learn as he goes. He's finding out he has talents, but he doesn't know how to manage the talent. His struggle constantly is the thing that makes him so compelling to the readers because they're just like he is. They know they're supposed to be smart. They know they're supposed to do this stuff, be it homework, be it practice your instrument, be it make your parents (laughs) proud in the kid's case. But they don't know how to do it. They just know it's expected of them. And that's what Harry's predicament is. Looking back on my kids are, you know, in their teenage years now, but looking back, reading those books aloud to them was one of the great experiences we had together. It's a beautiful really thing. Sweet. <laughs> Can I put in a word here for uh, His Dark Materials? By oh, Philip my Pullman? God, yes. yes I could not get my daughters into that, which is a shame because it's awesome. And the th- reason I love it, among its many other virtues, is the fact that everybody was accusing, I mean, well, dumb people <laughs> were accusing Harry Potter of being Satanist and not letting their kids right. read it. Yeah. It's actually Satanist. <laughs> I mean, it is flat out <laughs> Satanist. The uh-huh. villain is God, the hero is Satan. Enjoy. <laughs> And the fact that the same people who were so dumb that they thought Harry Potter was Satanist (laughs) were also so dumb that they couldn't tell this other incredibly popular series of children's books was actually Satanist makes me very happy. (laughs) That's something that I I think as a a geek, nerd, dork parent is probably perpetually stressful is you love something so dearly and then you're trying to introduce it. But sometimes it holds up and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes Sometimes it catches on with them and sometimes sometimes it it doesn't. doesn't. And sometimes there's a very common error that you bring stuff to them too early, and that scares them off, sometimes literally. (laughs) Like, my favorite story is uh, one day I said, hey, guys, you know what's a really fun movie that you're going to love? Ghostbusters. And they were like, (laughs) awesome, that sounds great. I said, it's really funny, it's really charming, and it's not scary at all. And I sent them upstairs to start watching the movie while it cleaned up, and I forgot, because it had been a while, (laughs) that there is one scare in Ghostbusters. It's in the first scene. Yep. And it's kind of clever. They might have intended that. They give you one scare with a librarian ghost. And then the rest of the movie, you're sitting around a little nervous because they might do it again. They never do. But I remember being downstairs and I'm washing the dishes and I hear a... And then a... And they all came running downstairs crying and screaming because it was so scary. And I told them it wasn't scary. And it was years before I could get them to watch Ghostbusters again. So you got to be careful. Something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? This is why I hated Kira Kurosawa, right? Why? Because my dad made me watch Yojimbo when I was like five. And I was like, this is horrible. Five? <laughs> now that's, that's pretty dumb. I ain't afraid of no Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Trisha Bobita, here with Greta Johnson. So you mentioned falling away from those nerdy things Mm -hmm. as a teen. Was that because of peer pressure to do so, or... Not, not in the happen? least. I mean, I really associated it with my leaving high school and going off to college. I was, you know, just like a lot of nerdy kids, uncomfortable in high school, and so I escaped into these books and TV shows that nobody else cared about. In a weird way, that itself is isolating. It's like, I can't talk to any of you people because I'm interested in The Lord of the Rings. Well, you're interested in dumb things like sports and each other. <laughs> uh, so are that, you telling me that you became the cool kid at Harvard? I have never been the cool kid. <laughs> okay? Let's just get that straight. But what I'm saying is that when I went to Harvard, I found out that I knew all these people who were interested in actual real things. It's much better to go out and have a real best friend than sit around and pretend that your best friend is Aragorn. (laughs) That's what I found out. Even if your best friend is not as cool as Aragorn, he's real. You can talk to him. So I missed the whole 90s pop culture thing. All the stuff, I just wasn't watching TV. I wasn't reading that kind of fantasy stuff or science fiction at all. And then, of course, I started getting back into it by reading to my kids or reading with my kids. And that was really fun. And there were moments when I could successfully introduce them to stuff I had loved. For example, I'll always remember reading them The Phantom Tollbooth, which was one of my favorite books that I think probably was the ur text that led me to read a lot of books with maps on their fronts. (laughs) For me, though, the real sort of bizarre re-entry into this world was Game of Thrones because a number of my friends said to me, you should read these books. You know, it's just like the books we all read as kids, but it's better and you should really. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm a grown man. I have a job. I have a family. I'm not going to go back to reading trashy paperbacks. This was the pre-HBO tie-in editions, trashy paperbacks <laughs> with girls and brass bras in the front and maps. And I'm not going to do that. Then the TV show was about to start, and so I picked one up, and literally four minutes later, I'm walking into walls because I (laughs) won't put the book down to look up. The people of my, what do you want to call them, birth cohort, people in their 40s who grew up on Tolkien and all those science fiction authors, they're now writing. They're smart. They absorbed all the lessons. They're not going to, you know, just knock it off. They're going to make it better. And so the stuff out there now is really good. George R. R. Martin is not the only but certainly the most well-known of a guy who grew up on Tolkien and said, okay, I love Tolkien. How can I make it better? How can I push it further? And so there's all this amazing science fiction and fantasy and stuff. The TV shows are brilliant. The movies are amazing. And so it's really tempting to sort of fall back into it. Is there a single movie that's actually better than the book really is? Movies are different than books. I don't need to tell you this. The, the, (laughs) The things that work in movies are not necessarily the things that work in books. Here's a really good example of what I mean. I saw Silence of the Lambs. Now, it just so happens, and I know this is weird to say, The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris is probably my favorite book. Now, I don't mean, this is the same thing that E.B. White said about Walden. (laughs) Like, this is the book that represents what I feel about the world. It's like, I think The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas E. Harris is the perfect book. There's not a word in that book that is misplaced. I can quote that book to you. Whenever I'm sort of bored and listen, I just take it down and read a few pages because it's so good. So I saw the movie, and the movie's very, very good. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, well, this is unfair. The movie is just the book. Yeah. And they gave an Oscar to the screenwriter, Ted Talley, 
for that screenplay. And I thought that was completely undeserved. He should have taken that Oscar and immediately given it to Thomas Harris because what's good in the movie is good in the book. Then I watched it again after having read the book another six times because that's how I spend my time. I reread <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. And, and I realized that, and I had done some screenwriting at that point of my own, and I realized that, no, it's actually very, very difficult, that there's a skill in taking what's in a book and making it into a movie so that even if you manage to create the same effect in the movie as the book managed to create in the reader, you're still doing something so skillful and so difficult. If there's a key line in the movie of The Silence of the Lambs, I think it's about the first time that uh, Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, looks into the camera and he says, I'll help you find him, Clarice. And that line is not in the book. What Ted Talley did was he realized that that strain of the book, that that relationship between the two characters, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, that's the key to the movie. And it's not merely a mystery in which one person is giving clues to the detectives on purpose, which is what it seems like in the book, but it's an actual relationship. And that's what makes the movie brilliant. It's in the book, but it had to be brought out. Right. So what I mean to say is even a good movie from a good book shows skill and requires credit to the filmmakers. Is that to your point, Greta? I mean, that's entirely fair. Yeah. I just think, and maybe it's just because I'm more of a reader than I am a movie watcher. She doesn't really watch movies. I suck at movies. How how can you suck at watching movies? You just have to sit there in the dark and not fall asleep. I know. I know. And I watch all sorts of television. But I do. Well, here's another example. Um, Have you guys watching Game of Thrones? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, I love Game of Thrones, like all right-thinking people. And I read all the books. (laughs) And uh, they are actually improving the books. They are making the scenes sharper. Take down your well-thumbed copy of A Storm of Swords (laughs) from your shelf. I know it's there. And read Tyrion's Trial. Okay, And you will see that it is comparatively slack. It is comparatively undramatic. And this is George R.R. R. Martin we're talking about, who is great at drama, who used to write for television, yeah. who knows how to create scenes. What was the greatest moment, if you ask me, in the trial scene? That's when, in the middle of Shay's testimony, Tyrion says, Shay, please don't. That moment, not in the book. That's yeah. the writer knowing that you've got to point the camera at Peter Dinklage and give him a moment. And now Dinklage did it great, but that's the writer knowing that. And I, I'm going to give the credit to the guy who wrote the episode because that was hard work. And sometimes the hardest part of writing drama of any kind or, or scripts or whatever you want to call them, movies, TV, plays, is understanding the anatomy of a moment and making it apparent to an exterior viewer rather than, as George Martin does, to the interior life. All right. I'm going to go back and reread the trial. I think I mean. you're right. I think you're right. The idea with homework is we like to give our listeners assignments at the oh, end gosh. of each episode. Okay. And it can really be Oh, I give any you homework? You give things. us and the listeners oh, homework. An I, assignment to better ourselves as nerds of the world. Okay. Go outside. When I look back on my childhood, especially my nerdy childhood, I have two regrets. The first regret is kind of about nerddom itself. My friends and I used to praise the idea of escapism. I mean, I remember one of the buttons we got at conventions was the only people who are opposed to escapism are jailers. <laughs> That's fun, but it is escapism. What are you escaping from? Well, there's this wonderful world around you, and it's actually filled with really interesting stories that are true. But more than that, I also regret spending so much time in my head 
And what you're really doing is you're sort of building walls, you're bricking up windows. So one of the things that became very important to me when I was a teenager, and uh, even more so now, is going outside and going for a run. The body that you have is more useful for things than carrying your head around <laughs> and pointing it at various screens or pages. And I think it's really important, especially today, when we have our iPhones and iPads and televisions and computers, to cut all that out. Because I think it's really important to sort of find out what's going on inside your head rather than keep shoveling things in it. Because I think a lot of times, and again, if you think you're speaking for myself, you're right. You take in <laughs> all this input just to quiet the voice inside because you can't stand it. It's like, oh, my own thoughts are uncomfortable to me, whatever they may be. Maybe they're sad. Maybe they're whatever. And I know I'm echoing what Louis C.K. said, although he was much funnier. Louis C.K. did this thing where he was talking about why he doesn't give his kids oh, phones. Sure. The way he put it was like, oh, I'm going to be sad. Oh, no, I won't be sad. I'll look at my phone. Right. It's like, no, be sad. Mm, yeah. Have some despair. Yeah. Have some loneliness. Exist for a moment. And the way I do that is I go out and I go for a run. Sometimes I take my dog. Also get a dog. I already got a dog, Trisha, but you need a dog. It's true. I do need a dog. My life is not conducive to a dog. <laughs> I can barely keep plants alive. Your other piece of homework this week is to check out one or more of Mary Roach's books. These are stiff which is about dead people and how interesting they are. Spook, the real-life search for ghosts. Bonk is about sex. And then there's Gulp, which is about the digestive system. She really spans the gamut, you guys. My favorite is her book, Packing for Mars, because Mars. I love space. <laughs> we'll hear from Mary about her life of investigating gross things next week on the show. But now it's time to hear from you. We asked for your nerd confessions, and you didn't disappoint. In middle school, my friend and I were obsessed with rail. Actually, coding in general, any kind of code, we would pass notes to each other, and so the teachers couldn't read them, we'd make up our own code. So one day we decided that we were going to learn how to write Braille, because it's kind of a code in and of itself, and it's everywhere. So we got together, and we memorized the Braille alphabet. Let me just point out that we were also both sighted and did not have any visually impaired friends, so this was very awesome and very nerdy. This makes me so happy in all of the ways. We still want to hear your nerd confessions, too. Call us, 312-600-5638. Tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags are welcome. That's 312-600-5638. Call us and give us a nerd confession. Or suggest a great lady nerd of history you'd like us to profile. Or you can just say hi. We love voicemails. It's true. And we might play your nerd confession on next week's episode. You can find us in the meantime at wbez.org slash podcasts. And our Tumblr is nerdatpodcast.com. Follow us there for nerdy musings and links all throughout the week. You can also talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast and like us on Facebook. You guys, I'm drawing the line at Snapchat. I'm not going to the Snapchats. <laughs> you can't make me. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dussault. Thanks to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me host Peter Seigel for joining us and for such a warm welcome from everyone into the Chicago public media family. It's a weird family. In a good way. Chicago public media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw some stars if you're feeling generous. Like the lovely RGM Smish did on iTunes. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.